Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Last week, but I want us to look at the last words of David in chapter 23. This final hymn, this final psalm that uh, that he writes. I want us to look at these words because this morning we observed Lizikaron. We focused our attention on Messiah, who's given his life for us, and I wanted to look at a passage that directs our attention more fully to him. And to the kingdom that he wa- he will one day establish. So I want to connect Psalm, or I should say, Second Samuel chapter twenty-three with Psalm seventy-two. Both of the both of these passages are linked together by an interesting phrase. Now, Psalm seventy-two is a psalm of Solomon, David's son, who will take over the throne when David dies. And 2 Samuel 23 is this portion of David, this portion of his psalm. Now, notice what he writes. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, when you read that passage, initially it sounds like it's about David. And so it appears, it appears that David is made reference to us with these following titles. Number one, number one, it's the last words of David, the oracle of David. Secondly, the son of Jesse. Certainly that's a title for David. Jesse is his father. The oracle of the man who was raised on high. That seems to be a reference to David who was anointed as king. The anointed of the God of Jacob, even as he was anointed king over Israel. And this phrase is oftentimes applied to David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. But this is a bad translation, actually. It is the translation. Now, this will get a little technical. I'm just going to take a few moments. I don't want to get bogged down in this. But this is due to the fact, this translation is due to the fact that the Masoretes, you know who the Masoretes were? They were Jewish scribes that lived, let's just say, in the Middle Ages, around six to 900 years after Messiah. Everybody's with me? And the Masoretes, what makes them so important is that they are the ones who vocalized the Hebrew language. Now, what I mean by vocalized is 
They are the ones that created the vowel system of dots and dashes that are put to the consonants that enables one to read Hebrew or to vocalize Hebrew. Follow me? So Hebrew is a consonantal text. That is to say, Hebrew is a, is a language made up of only consonants. But you cannot pronounce only consonants. Try pronouncing S-T-L, tzol. So you need some vowels. We need an A or an I or an O. That's what the Masoretes did. They provided vowel pointings so that you and I can learn Hebrew without having to move into a Jewish community and hearing Hebrew spoken all the time. Otherwise, you could never just look at the the letters and determine what they mean because you don't know what vowels are to be put with the consonants. Still with me? So what the Masoretes did around 900 years after Messiah, after Messiah, is they created a system of dots and dashes that enable us to speak and to read Hebrew. And thus you can learn Hebrew without having to memorize what vowels go with what series of consonants. So if you go online, for example, we have had a Hebrew class. We're going to restart it in a couple of weeks. And you can actually learn Hebrew as I'm bringing some of our students here from our congregation through a class on biblical Hebrew. And by the way, I just uh, realized we have like 25 uh, students who are online. They've never come to this congregation. I have no idea where they're coming from, but they're writing saying, hey, I saw this online because we videotape it, and I'd be interested in the Hebrew exercises you passed out to the class. So I mail mail it out to them, and they thank me for it. And there's like 25 people who are just watching the videos and getting the materials that I sent to them. It's amazing with the internet what that has provided us the opportunity to do. So when the Masoretes put vowels to a given series of consonants, they are also giving their understanding of the meaning of the passage. Still with me? So in a way, the Masoretic text... The Hebrew text is a version of the original text. Still with me? It's a version because it's the version of the Masoretes. If we saw that there are other versions that have different vowel pointings to a word that changes the meaning of the word, it means to say that there's another option in terms of understanding how this passage is to be understood. Still with me? So in the Hebrew, and I have my, a uh, portion of the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Samuel. When we read this portion, we come to this phrase. It says, Uneum hagever chukam al. And it's translated as the, the saying of the man raised on high, al, to be up or on high. But that is pointed by the Masoretes with a particular vowel that has the consonants ayin and lamed, where we get the al sound, to mean on high. If it was pointed with a different vowel, same sounding vowel, but a different looking vowel, it changes the meaning of the word al from on high to concerning. And if you have the word concerning, and by the way, there are various manuscripts that read 
concerning rather than on high with the vowel symbol. The phrase would actually be saying, now these are the words of David. The saying of David, the son of Jesse. The saying of the man concerning the anointed of the God of Jacob. So if we understand it that way, David is not writing about himself. What he's saying is, look, this is an oracle that has been given to David. Look at verse 2. We know it's been given to David because in verse 2 it says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was upon my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. So this oracle, David is saying, is an oracle that was given to him by God. Still with me? God spoke to him. The rock of Israel spoke to him. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. I believe this is a reference to the very triunity of God. When it says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon me, that's, of course, a reference to the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. When it says the God of Israel said to me, that's a reference to the Father. And when the passage says the rock of Israel, that's a reference to Messiah. It's no accident that Yeshua said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my congregation, what we oftentimes read as my church. It's upon this rock. He could have said anything. He could have said upon me or upon uh, Messiah, whatever. But he said upon this rock because the rock is Messiah. That's why he's called the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling. He is the rock of Israel. So God, in the fullness of his triune being, has made revelation to David. And the revelation is not about himself. The revelation concerns Mashiach, Messiah. That's the word there, the anointed one. It's Mashiach Elohai Yaakov, the Messiah, the God of Jacob. And so this oracle in in 2 Samuel 23 is an oracle about the Messiah. And this phrase, the sweet singer of Israel, is a very bad translation. The Hebrew is Vineim Zemirot Yisrael, the pleasant one of the songs of Israel. Zemirs are songs. Zemirot are songs, plural. Ot, Zemirot. He's saying this oracle that God has given me is an oracle that concerns the Messiah of Israel. The one the pleasant one, the delightful one of the Psalms of Israel. In fact, here's a note in, this is a a Bible from the Sincino set. This is a Jewish commentary is uh, here. And their translation is, the sweet singer of Israel, literally, the pleasant one of the songs of Israel, which many modern scholars prefer to render as the darling of the songs of Israel. What does it mean? I.e., this is them. This is Sonsino. The favorite subject of the Psalms and poems. In other words, what David is saying is this. The Psalms of Israel, the delightful theme of the Psalms of Israel, 
the most, the, what the Psalms of Israel are all about, or what it says here, the favorite subject of the Psalms of Israel is the Messiah of Israel. That's what David is saying in 2 Samuel 23. He's saying, the Lord has spoken to me. The God of Israel, the rock of Israel, the spirit of God. God has impressed on me this oracle. And the oracle are the Psalms in totality. And what is chief and most important and most delightful and the favorite subject of the Psalms of Israel is not me. It is Messiah, the son of David. That's what 2 Samuel 23 begins with. Now, this is very interesting. The Septuagint. Everybody knows what the Septuagint is? We've spoken about that here. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures 200 years before the time of Messiah. 200 years, well, from your perspective, 200 years before the time of Messiah. Remember, the Masoretic text is 900 years after. So perhaps the reason they pointed the Hebrew text in a way that detracts from the Messiah is not because they're deliberately taking our eyes off Messiah, because there are plenty of passages where it's pointed in such a way that Messiah is spoken about. But perhaps over 900 years, Jewish tradition and rabbinic ideas were of such a nature that the centrality of Messiah is not as central as it once was, which is true today among modern Judaism, so that when they pointed it, they pointed it how they understood the passage. But the Septuagint, 200 years before, which is a Jewish translation, albeit into Greek. You know, the Septuagint was translated by 70, allegedly, traditionally. That's why it's called the Septuagint, 70. Traditionally, it was translated by 70 Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, 200 years or so before Messiah. Why did they translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek? Because by this period of time, Greek is the common language. It's the lingua franca, the common language of the then known world. And so the rabbis were concerned that Jewish people, for the most part, were not able to read and understand Hebrew. They could recite Hebrew in the synagogue. They could recite Hebrew in worship, but they couldn't understand it. So the rabbis decided, you know what? Let's translate the Bible so they can understand it. So let's translate it in the language that is the common language, Greek. What's neat is that it was done 200 years before Messiah, so there's no axe to grind, right? He hasn't appeared on the scene yet. And it's a period of time in which Messiah was a central topic and subject in Jewish minds. Afterwards, maybe not so much, but before it was of a higher uh, sense. When they translated the Hebrew word al, they translated it with the Greek word epi. And the Greek word epi means concerning. They understood that the consonants in the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text doesn't exist yet, 
So there's no vowels put into the text. It's just consonants. With me? When these Hebrew scholars saw the same consonants the Masoretes saw, they used the Greek word not high above, but they used the Greek word concerning, epi, which is what the Hebrew word al could be with a different vowel pointing than what the Masoretes gave it. I believe the Masoretic version is wrong. And I believe the Septuagint got it right. And there's another reason why, because this passage cannot make sense unless it's about the Messiah. Because look at chapter 23 a second time. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man concerning the anointed of the God of Jacob, the one about whom the Psalms speak, is essentially what that phrase means. He says in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. He's, go, he's talking about Messiah now. The, his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What David is saying is this, the Messiah of Israel, the anointed one, is the central focus of the Psalms, the central theme about which I have written and countless others will write or have written as well. But his Psalms are about Messiah, ultimately, ultimately. And what he tells us here is, look, the Messiah of Israel is one who will rule. And when he will rule, he's going to rule justly. Why? Because when one rules justly, he dawns on him like the morning light. In other words, he brings righteousness to the people. He brings light and revelation and goodness and all kinds of good things to the people. He's telling us that the Messiah of Israel is the one who will rule this way. And when one rules this way, good things happen. But now, if you look at verse 5, in mostly every translation in the English, it has a question. The question is, for does not my house stand so with God? Now, the reason why that's a question in the, in the, in the English is because they have to be consistent with what they did in verse 1. In verse 1, they said that this was a psalm or David was speaking about himself, correct? If you read your translation again, my translation as well, English Standard, it gives the impression that this is an oracle of David about the sweet psalmist of Israel, right? But when you get to verse 5, there's a problem with it being about the sweet psalmist of Israel if the sweet psalmist of Israel is David. The problem is this. In verse 5, the Hebrew text reads, you just get this. The Hebrew text reads, key, which means because or for, lo, Cain, lo means no, Cain means thus. 
So it's because it is not beti. It's from the Hebrew word bayit, house. Beti means my house. Ki lo ken beti im. Im is the Hebrew word, which means with, el, God. That's the phrase. Ki lo ken beti im el. Literally, because or thus it is not so in my house with God. That's what it literally says. But you see, that doesn't make sense with verse 1. For David to say, this is a psalm, what I'm about to write is about the sweet psalmist of Israel, and then to say, but his house and that reigning righteously will bring good things to the people of Israel, essentially. And then he says, but my house is not so with God. I mean, that's like, wait a minute, didn't you just say you're the sweet singer of Israel? Aren't you the one raised up on high, the anointed of God, and yet my house is not right? So that's why in our Bibles in English, it's, it's phrased as a question. Is not my house right with God? And the answer would be, it is right. You'd have to say the opposite. The problem with that is the Hebrew has a distinctive way of introducing a yes-no question. The letter hey must precede the sentence to indicate this is a question that's to be answered yes-no, yes or no. But the hey does not exist. So either you make it a question, which it cannot be, or we're not translating a portion of this passage properly. And I think we've not translated the front end of this passage properly. The front of the passage is not about David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The front end of the passage is about the Messiah, who is the delight and the central theme of the Psalms. That's what David wrote about. And that one is one who will reign with righteousness. And when one like him reigns in righteousness, the sun shines and the blessings of God come. But I'm not that one because that is not, my house is not right with God. He's not saying I'm the worst sinner in the world. David is the best king of all Israel. But his house was not always right with God. He himself sinned by murdering and committing adultery. His son Absalom rebelled against him. His other son uh, raped his own sister. His house was in great turmoil. So what is David saying? Look at verse 5. But my house is not this house. My, I'm not the Messiah. And this is not the kingdom yet of Messiah. So he goes on to say, He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and secure. He's talking about the promise God made to him back in chapter 7 of uh, 2 Samuel. And it's there in chapter 7 that Nathan, the spokesperson for God, the prophet, tells David, you will have a descendant who will sit on your throne forever. And the delightful one that the Psalms are about is about that son who will descend from me. I'm not the one who will bring about this glorious kingdom 
because my house is not right with God. But the promise that God has given me and all Israel is that through my family, that Messiah will one day come. And it is secure. It is certain. So keep your eyes open for that king. For that is the king you must place your faith, ultimate faith and trust in. That is the king who will reign in ultimate righteousness. That is the king who will bring Israel's great blessings upon her. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? He will bring about that coming kingdom. And we must look at the Psalms because the Psalms are all about him. Now, in closing, I want to turn your attention to Psalm 72. Everybody follow that passage? It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Now, if you look at Psalm 72, which is Solomon's psalm, David's son who will inherit the kingdom. The reason I turn your attention there is because all scholars make a comparison between what David writes in 2 Samuel and what Solomon writes in Psalm 72, verse 5. Again, a bad translation from the Masoretic text. We're not going to get into all of it, but if you look at verse 5, our translations say, but they fear you while the sun endures. But it actually is third person. That should be, may he fear you while the sun endures. There's that sun theme again. And as kings, as long as the moon throughout all generations. Now, let me just share with you what Solomon paints for us. Solomon paints for us a picture of the king of Israel and the kingdom that the king of Israel will bring upon the earth. He cannot be talking about his own kingdom as great as his kingdom was. He must be talking about a greater kingdom than even his kingdom was, a kingdom that Messiah would bring in. Why? Because look at verses 1 to 4. Uh, one to four. In verses 1 to 4, he tells us of the character of the kingdom. Notice, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Who is this royal son? It can't be Solomon. It must be Messiah. I'll show you why. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear, beat, uh, beat prosperity Bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. If you notice, three times the word righteousness appears. Look at verse 1. Your righteousness to the royal son. Look at verse 2. May you judge your people with righteousness. Look at verse 3. And the hills in righteousness. The nature, or I should say the character of, of the kings of this kingdom is righteousness. And if you look, it's a righteousness that is granted and is acted upon. And because that righteousness is demonstrated, the people prosper. Look at verse three. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. The people prosper 
because the king is righteous. That's what David was saying. I'm not that king. My house is not so right with God. But when the righteous king comes, the sun will shine like we've never seen it shine before. Great prosperity will be in our midst. And what's so neat about Messiah being uh, characterized by the righteousness of God is that Jeremiah calls him Adonai Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. He's not just righteous, he is our righteousness. This is very different. This is a different king. He's not just a righteous king, he's a righteous king that becomes our very own righteousness. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he is our righteousness. And therefore, the reason we stand right with God is because of his righteousness. Like David, our house is not right with God, but because of him, we stand right with God. And over time, our house will become more righteous, but it will never be completely righteous to wear with him forever. And so the characteristic of the king is that he's righteous. And the characteristic of his kingdom is that it is a righteous kingdom. And the results of righteousness is goodness, is prosperity, is great blessing. But that's not all it says about the kingdom. It says, secondly, if you look at verse 5, it tells us of the duration of this kingdom. Look what he says. May, now, our translations say, may they fear you, but this is a bad translation. Everything is in the third person. Look at this in verse 4. May he defend. Look at verse 6. May he be like. Verse 7, in his days. Verse 8, may he have. Verse 9, or I should say, uh, in uh, verse 12, for he delivers. Verse 13, he has pity. Look at verse 15, long may he live. It's all third person. And in verse 5, it should be the same way. May he fear you while the sun rises. The idea is may he be uh, always submissive to you, always. May he be worshiping you. And look what he says, may he be like rain that falls on the grass and, and in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound to the moon be no more. The duration of his kingdom is to the sun and moon continue to shine. In other words, it's eternal. It's forever. And because of its eternality, notice what he says, and in his day may the righteous flourish. But look at verse 6. Uh, and and verse 7, and peace abound. Because his kingdom endures forever, peace finally comes. So because of righteousness, there's prosperity. Because of an eternal duration, there is peace. And thus Yeshua is called the Prince of Peace. Paul makes reference to him being our peace. This is not Solomon. This is a kingdom that has no end, like the sun and the moon. Solomon reigned for 40 years, as did David, his father. And their reign comes to an end. But this king will reign as long as the sun and as long as the moon are in their place. Look at verse 8. Not only do we hear, see of the character of the kingdom, not only do we see of its duration, but look of its extent. In verse 8, may he have dominion, dominion from sea to sea, from the river, the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. 
May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the, lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba, now we're down the south and Africa and the desert, bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The extent of this king's kingdom is from as far east as he could think about, the Euphrates, as far west, Tarshish, as far south, Sheba. And then he says, you know, I know there's more out there, but from my vantage point, those are the, the earth that I know of, those places. But he says, and may all kings and all nations. That never happened to Solomon. That never happened to David. That will be Messiah, for he will be the king of kings and lord of lords. Solomon, like his father said before, the principal theme of the Psalms, the heartthrob of the Psalms, the delight of the Psalms is Messiah. And so Solomon writes such a psalm. And he says the character of that king and his kingdom is righteousness. The extent or the, of that king and his kingdom is that it is, or its duration is forever. And the extent of that kingdom is that it will encompass all nations, not just the nation of Israel, but all nations, all kings will bow before him. And what will characterize that kingdom or what will be the nature of that kingdom look at verse 12 for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper he has pity on the weak and the needy and he saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight what will characterize the kingdom what is the nature of the kingdom compassion He cares for those in need. He's not a tyrant like most kings tend to be at some point in their reign. But he's one who will always have in his mind the poor, the needy, the downcast, the humble. And he will provide for them. Why? Because his kingdom is a compassionate kingdom. His kingdom is a caring kingdom. His kingdom is a loving kingdom. His kingdom is a kind-hearted kingdom. His kingdom is a gentle kingdom. That's why he says, blessed are the merciful. And that's why we're encouraged to be poor uh, in spirit so that we could receive the fullness of what God has for us. That's why the scripture says, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and in due time, He will raise you up. And this kingdom, which is eternal, which is expansive to include all nations, which is kind-hearted and gentle, this kingdom, which is characterized by righteousness, is a kingdom of great blessing. Look at verse 15. Long may he live. May prayer be made for him continually. By the way, from verse 15 to the end, like five, six times, the word blessing comes up. He says in verse 16, may there be abundance of grain. 
and the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities. The blessings are not just about the land, but on the people themselves. May his, may his name endure forever. This is not Solomon. This is the Messiah. May his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed not only by him, but in him. That's why the key phrase of Paul is being in Messiah, that we would be blessed in him, that all nations would call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be the glorious name forever. May the whole earth, remember that song, be filled with his glory. Amen is not enough. Amen and amen, Solomon says. And so Solomon is saying, we must look for that king who is Messiah of Israel. He's the one who will reign forever. He's the one who will reign in righteousness. He's the one who will take care of those in need, which is all of us. He's the one whose reign will extend from sea to sea. He is the one who will be gentle of heart, humble. He rides in on a donkey. He's the one who is most blessed and will most bless others and therefore the congregation cries out blessed be the lord god of israel who alone does wondrous things i think it was joel chernoff right who wrote that song blessed be the lord god this is where it comes from right blessed be the lord god of israel blessed be the lord god the god of israel who alone does wonderful things. Who, uh, sorry about my voice, but I'm saying, you know, this is just a great tune, right? And then he has that bridge, right? Let the whole earth be fulfilled, right out of this passage, you know. And this is what we pray for. Even so, come Lord Yeshua. He came to die for our sin. He will come again to reign in righteousness over all the earth. Do you know him as your savior and as your king? Have you given your heart and soul to him as your savior and as your king? Are you desirous of giving him praise for what he's done for you and what he will do in you? And are we ready to serve our king because of what he's done for us, to serve in kindness, in gentleness, and in love, one to another. The king is coming soon. And when he comes, Yeshua says, may he find us waiting for him. How do we wait for him? We wait for him by celebrating what he's already done for us and what he is to us. He is our savior and he has saved us. He is our king let him reign in your heart. Let's pray. As we're praying, the ushers can come. The uh, musicians can come. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, this morning. We are grateful that we can worship you and praise you. We are so thankful for your glorious name. It isn't because we live in a free country that we worship you. It's because you are the king of all kings. And no matter where we would be, we would worship you. For you alone are worthy. And so, Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation you've provided for it through Yeshua. We thank you for the kingdom that you will one day bring upon this earth. And we praise you 
that your word consistently draws our attention to him who is the delight of the Psalms, the one about whom all the Psalms speak, and the one about whom the Psalms tell us he would give his life a ransom for many and that he would reign over all the earth. We praise you, O Lord. We hallow your name. And we glorify and bless you. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. The ushers can come. Why don't we stand together as we praise him. Those of you online who might like to partner with us, you can download our app at the App Store, Beth R-E-L-L-A. And you can contribute to our ministry, share in what God is doing, not only here in Tarzana, but also up in Valencia. Certainly be in prayer for our ministry as we bring the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We appreciate your prayers. We appreciate your gifts. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.